Welcome everybody to another Direct Connect with Archer. Uh, here today we're sitting down with Nick Weber, Leonard Chamberlain, and myself, Brian Carr. Uh, we're going to talk about some, some recent news that some of you may be familiar with. Uh, looking forward to having some good conversations and, and gaining some insight here on uh, some recent uh, electric utility news and, and happenings. So with that, we'll, uh, we'll kick it off. Uh, Leading into our discussions about uh, kind of recent substation attacks, we've had since December there have been been a handful of, of incidents and and or attacks at, at substations around the country. Uh, this is something that you know is won't say fairly new, but uh, certainly the frequency of it and and the attack vectors that have been used are, are something we we want to discuss uh, here today on on Direct Connect, recognizing that there's still in several of these cases, ongoing investigations, we don't know all the details. Um, we, you know, are still finding out bits and pieces here and there. There's some of them that we do know a little more about, but I want to talk about those. Um, you know, first of all, talking about kind of the general overview of uh, these particular substations. They've they've been various places: North Carolina, uh, Washington. Uh, there's been been several others we'll talk about as well, but um, you know. What is a substation? I mean, for, for listeners and for viewers who aren't familiar with this, um, you know, understanding the substation and you, everybody sees them, you know, one degree or another and driving down the road and see a bunch of wires and a bunch of towers and metal and, you know, funny looking parts and things in, in these electrical substations. Um, there's, there's a lot of, a lot of parts, a lot of, uh, technology. There's a lot of, uh, different things in these substations that, that are vulnerable to, to attack, and we want to talk a little bit about what some of those more more vulnerable pieces are, and how you how you identify those, and then we'll get into talking about some of the attacks and and what's happened there. Um, but definitely want to kick it over to to Nick and to Leonard, you know, and talking about you know some of these important pieces. You know, what's what's critical. You know, you can't can't go into substation right and say, well, everything's important. You know, including you know, this wire that's on the ground over here, like you, there has to be some sort of methodology, right? To, uh, to identify what's the most important pieces that would need to be protected. What are your thoughts on that? Thanks, Brian. Um, I would say, um, everything is important. <laughs> Protect it all. Even the porta potty. Um, <laughs> Uh, does it have a programmable cyber asset in, involved? That's it. It depends on how far it is from the nearest gas station. <laughs> true, true. Um, no, for years, um, you know, I would uh, be going into substations and talking with people about implementing the, the SIP standards, which are predominantly cyber standards, right? And invariably, you know, I would get into a conversation with a, with a field engineer about, you know, why, why are you so worried about this, this cyber security? I could do a lot more damage if I had access to the substation. I could just come in and flip switches or I could take an axe to a panel or, you know, throw a grenade into the yard or whatever the case may be. Um, and, you know, obviously those are all excellent points, right? There's a, there's a saying that if you don't have physical security, then all this cyber stuff doesn't doesn't matter as much right you know that is a true statement but you know cybersecurity you know has, has another attack vector that you always have to think about 
this idea that be it from common mode vulnerabilities or, or lax um, electronic security perimeters or whatever the case may be, the potential exists to leverage access, cyber access at one location and have, uh, you know, travel upstream, affect uh, equipment in multiple locations simultaneously. And from a physical perspective, you know, if you're just attacking that one uh, location, then, um, you know, the, the, theoretically the impact is, is fairly limited. Uh, obviously it depends on the size of the, the BEZ asset we're talking about. But, um, you know, some of these, these recent attacks, I think have kind of opened that Pandora's box to, to demonstrate that, that risk. But, um, you know, specific to equipment that you would be concerned with protecting, I mean, obviously the lines coming in and out of the site, um, those typically are not in scope because they're uh, from a, a NERC SIP perspective because it's concerned with cyber assets, as I was talking about. So a, a line itself is not a cyber asset. So NERC SIP doesn't have much to say about that. But um, the degree to which um, programmable electronic devices exist in, in the equipment is what drives it being in scope or not. So, of course, you have transformers, um, you know, all the uh, switches. Those are controlled by relays in the um, substation control house. Um, you know, the, the bus itself or the substation. All these things come into play as um, big iron, as they call it uh, in the industry, as um, aspects of the substation grid you would want to protect. Yeah, I think that you definitely got to some of the same spots I would look at. Uh, I would even take it a step back farther and looking at how SIP2 is applied. What's the impact of the BEZ um, if this asset's destroyed before we get into whether or not it has a cyber component? Um, and that's the piece that I usually, when I'm looking at like a SIP14, um, what's the impact of the BEZ? And then the next piece is how long does it take for this piece to actually fail? Um, understanding that you're realistically, we're not going to see somebody fly an airplane into a substation. Um, that's just... An amazing, amazing pilot to do that, and it's just we don't see that um, realistically. That that's just not vulnerability we're concerned with. The smoking hole in the ground on a substation. I don't want to say it can't happen because it certainly could, but the likelihood is extremely low, particularly in the U.S. But I think we're, what we've seen bore out whether it's gunshot or sabotage or whatever. It's individual components. So, how long does it take for somebody to sabotage or shoot? that component before it drops and creates that irreversible cascading instability, basically a bad day for your operators. Uh, those are the pieces I look at with it. Kind of interesting as we talk through this and, and some thoughts that came to mind, Leonard, as you were talking through that and Nick, you definitely added to it with, with, with your comments is traditionally the look, you know, again, from a SIP2 perspective, you know, evaluating it's, it's pretty, pretty clear, you know, I won't call it bright line criteria, but there's, you know, pretty clear criteria, but what we've seen or what we witnessed, you know, through recent events is, is at least a different perspective on impact, right? Because the SIP standards are aimed at the, you know, large transmission, you know, we're talking large scale outages, um, you know, millions of people type of thing, you know, you know, hard to kind of pick a number there, but, but just trying to illustrate, it's always been look, looking at the at the big big picture, um, and feels like there's 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 been little attention given to what are the effects of a smaller scale attack at a smaller substation. I mean, yeah, we had quite a few people in North Carolina. It was you know forty some thousand people that were without power for 
where were we at four or five days better part Hopefully. of a week i think yeah. yeah so you know that's not forty-five thousand customers is not i don't think it would fit into the large scale and of course unless you're one of those customers then it definitely feels like it um, but also for an extended period of time um, it's not that you know like we all experience power goes out and an hour later oh it's back on and everything's good and we're talking multiple days so those kind of impacts are never considered um, you know, how long does it take? Again, talking in the context of SIP2, it's, it's really looking at the, the big stuff, the, the very, very large scale outages like occurred, you know, back in early 2000s in, in the east, uh, where you have multiple substations, multiple cities, you know, multiple millions of people without power you know, for some time. That's, that's what it's been geared towards avoiding. But uh, definitely a, a different perspective on what's occurred lately and, and trying to figure out, yeah, how do you evaluate how do you identify what's critical um, on a large or, or even on a medium scale that, that can be very challenging it's been interesting to see california tackle this one through their puc they've had their fiscal security standard for distribution for a few years now and, um, i think they actually got that one pretty close to right out of the gate i'm impressed with what they came up with um, it yeah. looks at what's what's the load what's the load serve is it critical and they, they spell out what they consider critical infrastructure and then they add the, the piece, of, or what does it serve more than 60,000 meters? Which for California, 60,000 meters probably isn't that huge. But like you said, North Carolina, 40,000. You got to yeah. look at, at your jurisdiction yeah. there and understand. Um, yeah. The other piece that I, I think back to when I was the security manager at Grant, we had a, a substation burnout um, after a fault and some of the equipment didn't work quite right. We went around to the critical infrastructure. We knew it was served by that and said, hey, what's your backup plan? Where we've got everything restored, but we're not going to be as reliable as we want to be for a mm -hmm. while because we got to rebuild that substation. Yeah. And having those conversations with the, the customer base. And I like going back to when I was at DHS, that was always one of the big things. What are the, what are the downstream impacts? I remember, I think it was my first week at DHS and we did the, National level exercise 11 for anybody who was involved in that one. You're probably getting a chuckle right now. Um, the communications and energy sectors broke FEMA. Uh, so much that FEMA just said, all right, magically, communication and power is back. <laughs> <laughs> um, Wave of the hand, you know. Yeah, it was. Well, New Orleans broke FEMA long before that, in, uh, <laughs> 2005. Thank we you. broke, well, okay, DHL, the energy and comm sector broke the, the exercise side of FEMA then. Um, as much as FEMA was unbroken. Listen to y'all's comments, you know, um, and pose a question to y'all. Um, you know, obviously the SIP standards are often described as a, a minimum baseline, you know, that uh, the industry is expected to meet. And, and again, looking at the reasoning um, that drove the creation of the standards in the first place, trying to you know, protect the, the grid from kind of a, a nationwide outage, right? A cascading blackout. Um, as we start talking about these lower impact scenarios, um, the standards don't really um, take those into account. And, and maybe that's by design, right? Is, is this something that y'all see the PUCs, the state PUCs, being more... Um, more appropriate for them to address this via state regulation versus federal? I think there's an opportunity there that the, at least in my opinion or my perspective, you know, a lot of the, the state or 
you know, even lower down PUCs and that maybe don't have that understanding. They don't have that expertise, uh, knowledge base, you know, to, to accurately implement something. As you mentioned, Nick, with California uh, implementing, they, they actually got a lot of things right in that. Um, so how, you know, how did they come to that determination? You know, it's, it's fairly rare to, you know, hear about a government agency that gets something right, especially on the first time. Um, you know, there's, there's just a lot of politics. There's a lot of posturing. There's a lot of, you know, information flying around. Um, I, I would fear that a lot of the, the other PUCs either wouldn't know how to handle that very well or would just wouldn't have the right inputs, you know, to get the answer. Um, at the same time, is it, yeah, is it right to come from the federal level? Um, again, do they have the perspective that's needed, uh, you know, that's unique? I mean, every, every state, every, every area is different. You talk critical infrastructure, you know, from military bases, hospitals, you know, food processing. I mean, it, it, it spans that there's, there's certain states that may not have very much of that. Um, so how do they, you know, how are they expected to apply the standards? Um, are they expected to meet the same level if it's done kind of at a blanket federal level, similar to, to how SIP has been done? Um, it doesn't matter how big or small you are. It's do you, do you meet these criteria? You know, back to the PUC, they, they might have a little more insight potentially, but that, again, that's, that's my main concern on the PUC side is, yeah, do, do they have the expertise? Can they, can they find the expertise to really understand what's out there and ask the questions like what Nick was just saying, you know, go into these critical infrastructure, what's your backup plan here? You know, what happens if, and, um, that, that it's a lot of work, you know, it's a lot of, uh, a lot of conversations that, that generally aren't being had. It's know, a lot easier in a town of about 5,000 people. I'll tell yeah. You that. Yeah, definitely. You know, you call up Jim over there cause you know him or, you know, you know, it's, yeah, those, those conversations can be much easier, but, uh, you get into to the big cities and that it, it becomes, you know, a little bit convoluted. So, it, yeah, I wonder, wonder what you think, Nick, on what's. I, this gets into a whole lot of just <laughs> politics and the way the U.S. government's set up and some of the inefficiencies and just challenges around that that go back to man, Hamilton versus Jefferson or even older. Um, yeah. Frankly, I think the the most efficient and strongest way I've seen it is what our friends up north are doing in Canada, where it's at the pro uh, provincial level for transmission and for dis distribution. Hmm. That said, I don't see that working in the U.S. anytime soon due to the interstate nature of the grid. Um, so the next best thing I would say is it's the states. I don't know if the federal government is in the right position to manage the distribution or even regulate it other than go do something. Um, Maybe Homeland Security, just because they've got such a strong catalog of critical infrastructure from the last 20 years of doing this work. Um, but even that catalog, I would say, is behind whatever most of the states have. Um, I know before I went to DHS headquarters, I was working kind of a split mission supporting DHS for the Washington Guard. So I also helped out with the Office of Emergency Management in Washington. And they'd started essentially their version of DHS in 98. So there's a lot of the state of Washington telling the feds, hey, this is what's important. I know you're really worried about Grand Coulee, um, but let's also worry about Chief Joe that's just down the river. Um, let's worry about the guy that makes these widgets for the up-armored Humvee and has a patent on him out of his garage in Yelm, Washington. <laughs> that if we lose that, we're going to lose up-armored Humvees in the middle of Iraq and Afghanistan back then. Yeah. Feds had no clue that was going on, but the state level was being tracked and did. And a lot of that bubbled up again from the county. It came from those smaller groups. City, City of Seattle was a huge partner for us. Um, the county, 
whether it was a county sheriff or they had their own emergency management office at the county level, um, it really is the grassroots up because the feds have no idea. As much as we're concerned about them listening in on all of our conversations, INSA, um, <laughs> they, they really don't have a clue, uh, some of the, the nuance on things. Yeah. So I think there is the the state level when properly informed. Uh, and again, the California one, it, it honestly baffles me that a state as big and politically challenging as California got it right. I mean, there's always room for improvement, but it's yeah. one of the best standards I've seen, especially on V1. Uh, yeah. They listened to the people who knew. That's the biggest piece. Yeah. There you go. They went and talked to the, the stakeholders and listened. So not being uh, as familiar as you are with this uh, California standard, Nick, um, I'm curious, you you seem to obviously think they got it right. Is that because of the um, the scope of the equipment that they targeted or the specific controls or some mix? Of the, the controls on it are pretty light, which everybody is, I think a big piece of it is everybody feels like they had input or they at least by a second or third degree had input, so they're buying in. Um, it helps with rate cases, um, some of those pieces, but the controls themselves are even more vague than SIP 14. It's basically do an assessment and have a plan. And you can have one assessment, one plan for everything. It's not recommended, but you can do it. But getting back to the scope piece, I think the scope is where they really, really nailed it. And it was, again, going through, does it support a hospital? Does it support a military base, a jail? schools, um, 60,000 plus meters. It's just got the whole list. If you go down it, you can checklist it. So it's, I don't want to say idiot proof because I can always break idiot proof. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's pretty close. Um, and then there's the requirement to have an unaffiliated third party review. So a second set of eyes on it, which I think is the biggest piece that is so helpful, whether it's SIP 14 or these assessments, or even just as a matter of business doing security assessments, get somebody else to look at it. Yeah. I mean, We've got so many examples of we walk in and see something that somebody else has been walking past every day for 20 years. Yeah. So just that fresh perspective. Um, but again, it's, it's not super detailed. It's not do all of these things. It's have a plan, have an assessment, make sure they match, have somebody else look at it and give it the sanity check. That's, yeah. and I think that's probably part of it is it's not overly compliance burden. Yeah, it, it brings up the, the basics of know what you have, right? And yeah. that's, you know, know, know what you have. Know what you have. Yeah, I think that's that's an important piece to it. Um, yeah, so we talked we talk a little bit about, uh, you know, figuring out what's important. Obviously, there's some challenges with, with that, um, especially when you get down to the distribution level. Again, from a SIP perspective, a NERC SIP standards perspective, you know, it doesn't reach necessarily down to that distribution level, but, uh, you know, there's, there's important things there that obviously affect customers, um, you know, as, as we've shown or as we've learned, um, all too well through these, these recent incidents. Let's talk a little bit about some of those recent incidents. Um, I think the first one being North Carolina beginning of December, um, there were, you know, what appears to be a coordinated, uh, attack on a couple of substations, um, you know, using, using gunfire, um, you know, whether, you know, rifle, you know, rifle attack of some kind, uh, Nick, you, you probably more familiar with some of those details. What, what can you share with us about those particular attacks? I mean, uh, for sure. What I know of is there were two substations that were attacked, um, at the same time. That's what has me really yeah, got my attention. Somebody shooting up a substation, frankly, 
that kind of is a, eh, what else is there? Yeah. Uh, tell me more. But that, that's happened before, right? I mean, people have that, either errantly or purposefully, uh, you know, shot at transformers. I mean, Metcalf obviously being the most popular, but I'm saying uh, just in day-to-day -day operations, there's, there's, there's been hunters, you know, out there yeah. and, and don't know what's beyond their, their sight line. And, and, you know, or there's been people who are sighting in from a distance because, Hey, there's something to shoot at. Yeah. Yeah. So th those, those types of things have occurred, but this, this definitely was, this was a, a lot of rounds, um, at the same time in two different locations. So that, that levels up the sophistication. It's not hugely sophisticated or, or necessarily hard to pull off, but it does indicate that there's a, a larger group involved. It's not just one person or one small and, group. It's, and there's a plan, right? They obviously had a pretty clear intent. Yeah. Um, with what they're trying to do. And they, they shot at the, the components in the substation. Now, fortunately that utility, they had exercised what happens when somebody shoots our stuff. And the answer is we de-energize it. So, Generally speaking, there's some repairs that have to be made, obviously. Fins are damaged, bushings probably damaged, oil leaked out, all those pieces you got to deal with. But as far as I know, the actual transformer hull and, and the, the expensive and hard to replace part is, is still fine. So get the new bushings, get the new fans, maybe a new tank, whatever it needs on there. But those are a lot easier to repair, replace than, than burn up the whole transformer. Um, so that was that one where it was the, those two. Two or more, that's the air piece that I've heard some things out there, nothing confirmed, but that other stations were targeted, but the utility had gotten ahead of it um, mm -hmm. with de-energizing some pieces. And, and the big thing with a substation, generally speaking, if it's de-energized, go nuts. You, you're you going to have to have a whole lot of firepower to do damage. The real damage in a substation is getting it to burn itself up. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, and that happens obviously as... as certain components fail within that substation and obviously have a lot of electrical load, you know, mm -hmm. trying to pass through there or if your or otherwise. protective scheme is, is damaged or yeah. Open and closing breakers out of sequence. Yep. 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 Which, which brings me to the, to the West coast, uh, attacks, a very different, um, approach, uh, not necessarily coordinated, you know, it's simultaneous. We've seen uh, a handful of those there? ones going back into November. Actually, it was pretty quiet. Yeah, yeah that's right. Um, but there was some. I saw like attempted arson, um, basically trying to just break things with brute force. Yeah, what they're um, calling vandalism. But yeah, it, it's it's a fine line between vandalism and sabotage. I mean, the yeah. difference is the outcome, unfortunately. And then you get into the ones on Christmas Day where you have the two idiots that wanted to go rob stores on Christmas day. So they figured the best way to do that was to de-energize or to destroy sub four substations. I believe they attempted. Yeah. Wow. Not real bright. Um, fortunately, uh, at least one of the utilities, I think both though had pretty strong, um, detection assessment response and forensic capture on that. And we're able to get video to the FBI, got those guys arrested pretty quick and they're going to be yeah. tried on terrorism charges, which, yeah. Probably should have just stole the stuff and not gone after the infrastructure. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm not a lawyer I'm right now, but <clears throat> you can have a couple years in jail, or you can have you know dozens. You know, I, that, that's a whole level up there. It's not even a misdemeanor in Washington yeah. anymore. Is it? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. So yeah, you see in different vectors, but they're still attacking the same infrastructure. What I'm seeing with, we don't know for sure on the North Carolina one, but the initial reports and they haven't been disproven was that both of these were attacking the infrastructure to try to get at another target. 
Um, and we've seen that to a lesser degree, more at the neighborhood level. Um, yeah. Probably for the last 20 years, you'll see somebody who's mad at maybe a place, they, the neighborhood they used to live in, the HOA upset them or landlord evicted them and they want to get revenge. So whether it's throwing something over the, the lines feeding into the neighborhood, um, I think that might have played into the Garcane Electric one back in, what, yeah. 15, 16? Yep, it was. Somebody had a, a grudge against local community, so tried to turn their power off. Um, yeah. But seeing it now this many times in a row kind of feels like proof of concept got turned, and it's a different threat than we've been concerned with in the past. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely been realized, right, in, in ways we hadn't. And fully considered again at a, at a at a I won't say a local level, but you know on a smaller scale than we're we're used to looking at from a SIP perspective. You know, you look at number of customers impacted. Um, you know, in the West, I don't know. I don't remember the numbers on outages there in in the Washington State ones. Uh, once it was around 40, 25, 40,000, yeah. somewhere in there. It was pretty yeah. sizable because it was a number of substations in a yeah, pretty populated don't. area. Yeah. So yeah, it's. Some of those things just go, oh, you know, there's there's more to this. Um, yeah. And e even more recently, we've had vehicle-borne attack or, you know, attempt, you know, as far as ramming. Uh, what, what was that one, Nick? Because so I was down in uh, Las Vegas. And I don't know a lot of the details behind the why be on it, but guy rented a car. Of course, it was a rental. Um, rammed through the, the perimeter fence. At a, it was at a generation plant, which also makes it a little bit, strange you don't see that as much usually right. these substation attacks or the remote ones uh, but he clearly didn't care about getting caught because he drove around i think he got in and tried to flip some switches and then built a ramp to jump it into the containment pit around one of the the generator step-up transformers so jumped the car into the containment pit around the gsu and then lit the car on fire um, and hung out just watched it so yeah, yeah. it was at a solar I, facility, wasn't it? I think it was. Yeah, I think, I think it was a solar facility. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I can't remember what his rationale was, um, but there's a, a number of, of different reasons people claim for making these attacks. That one though, is it, it's almost comical. There's some of the stuff, when you step back and look at it, you take the effects out of it. it some of the stuff these people do are just. Yeah. Uh, either laugh or cry. Not making sense, but yeah. So how does that, uh, I guess, take us through then, you know, path forward? Um, you know, we talked a little bit, Leonard, you had some good questions there about regulation and, and that, but, you know, where do we go from here? This this proof of concept, as Nick mentioned, has been kind of proven. We've seen different uh, attack vectors. We've seen different methods, um, some more successful than others. Like where where do we think it's going? Obviously, uh, I think we're kind of in unprecedented times <clears throat> insofar as um, not only the, the types of attacks we're seeing, but um, also the, um, the press coverage and the awareness of the issues. And uh, it wouldn't surprise me if everybody tries to fix it all at once mm -hmm. and um, doesn't doesn't talk to each other and then you've got competing standards to deal with and yeah. not enough resources um you know the approach um that's going to be taken i think will be debated i mean as we've been talking about here you know it sounds like grid resiliency and you know normal grid operations um you know kept these from being bigger issues so you know is that 
the answer more, you know, investing in resiliency versus, um, you know, physical security uh, specific to these attacks. You know, we typically uh, regulation is very reactionary, right? So it'll it'll address these specific instances, but uh, may not really take into account a more holistic approach. Yeah, I, I think it's, I think you're right. I think everybody's going to try to fix it at once. Um, I'm sure everybody at, for, at the commission knows this, but they're on the clock right now, uh, I would say. Um, as are a number of states, I think there's, we'll probably see, I would expect out of these legislative sessions this year, I would say conservatively half a dozen versions of something similar to what California did. Um, obviously, probably in more of the, the blue-leaning states, because the red ones tend to drag their feet a little more in regulation. They want to see what the unintended consequences are going to be. Um, but I, I think ultimately we're going to get to is probably some level across most of the states. It'll take longer for a number of them. Uh, at the federal level, it'll be interesting to see. Uh, is it going to be more of the same of kind of the NERC SIP where we're on dash eight now, nine on some of these of, of iterative back and forth political games? Um or is it gonna? Or is somebody gonna step in and say, "All right, this is how it's gonna be." Grown-ups are in the room. Or does it get taken away from FERC? I mean, that's always something that's out there. Whether it actually gets realized or not, I don't know. Uh, kind of hesitate. I, I, I hope not because I don't have to relearn a lot of things because I've been around DC enough to know that everybody wants to put their stamp on everything. Yeah. Um, as far as the, the the way forward as an industry, I think it is. It's resilience. It's looking at. Um, Probably what eventually we're going to get to, I think, way down the road is getting away from the massive transmission system being the entire backbone, whether it's small modular reactors or whatever, the much smarter than me people come up with in the future. I think that's ultimately what gets us out of this is maybe decoupling some of this and having it a little bit less interconnected, having the interconnected be part of the response, not the day to day. Um, but obviously, there's a lot of technology gains have to happen first. On the shorter term, it, it comes back to the beginning of the conversation. If you're a security person, know what you're protecting. If you don't know what you're protecting, you're not going to protect it very well. Um, and that's probably the biggest thing I see, whether it's on cyber or physical, is the, the security folks doing the security things because it's the secure thing to do, not starting at it from the operational side of what does my company need me to do? Um, kind of becomes that you end up dying on a lot of hills if you, you do it just for the security purpose or the, the, the mission itself is sacrosanct, then you're not going to go very far. It's just, right. it's not going to work. I've seen this movie. Uh, yeah. Many times. Mandy Moore moves back to New England to uh, help her parents run the Airbnb or the B&B, whatever it is. Uh, yeah. It, you got to understand what you're protecting and be part of the business, be part of the solution within the business. Um, otherwise you're just, you're going to throw a lot of money away and a lot of goodwill and political capital. Um, as, as one of our friends likes to say, protect your pencils like pencils, gold like gold. You can't do that until you know what your pencils are and what your gold is. So I have gold uh, pencils. Does that count? Do they have donuts on them? I don't believe you <laughs> unless there's a donut do. involved. Um, of course they do. But yeah, I, honestly, I think that's where we're going to have to go eventually. Um, the other piece that's kind of disheartening to me whether it's a major cyber attack or major physical attack, the other side of the coin does the, don't forget about us. We're over here still. I uh, saw some of that last couple of weeks with cyber. Don't forget about cybersecurity. Like, nobody's forgetting about cybersecurity. Um, yeah. But it, it just reinforces that kind of the civil war within security that we got to get past. Because um, if somebody really wanted to, to cause havoc, shoot up a substation, 
and then go in and drop something in it. Take the copper, the old copper theft red herring and level it up. Yeah. Um, or do the, the substation vandalism to cover up what you did. Yeah. I mean, those are the pieces that if you're not physical and cyber aren't working together, aren't considering, Hey, what ifs you're, you're leaving yourself wide open. Yeah. Much agreed. I mean, the bottom line is, I think Leonard said it, you know, we're kind of in uncharted water or unprecedented territory here with a lot of that. And I think we all agree that that change is on the horizon. Um, you know, exactly what that's going to look like, how it's going to come about from who, uh, you know, that, that remains to be seen, but certainly there's, uh, there's going to be movement in, in a direction, probably several directions, uh, and be ready for that. Nick, your, your advice to security professionals is, is just spot on. I mean, understand what you have, understand what you're protecting and, you know, make sure that, that, your most critical components to the business or whatever it is that you're, you're part of or are protected appropriately. I think um, to put a pin in the uncharted territory, I just want to throw this out because it's the, the part nobody's really saying out loud for man, at least 15, almost 20 years now, probably we've been talking about what if an adversary causes an outage on the yeah. transmission side. Well, right. it happened. That's the territory we're in right now. We all thought it was going to be cyber first, but it was a physical attack that created a transmission outage. Yeah. And it's the first time this has happened. That's that's the key piece. We've had bigger bigger outages from nature and equipment failure, but this was the first attack one. Any other uh, closing comments, gentlemen, on on our conversation? Any other thoughts you want to wrap up with before we? Uh, just uh, referencing Nick's comment of uh, the commission FERC being on the clock. Um, you know, they did uh, direct NERC to uh, conduct study on. The, uh, the attacks and, you know, modifications to the SIP standards potentially. Um, and that's due within uh, three months. So uh, by the end of first quarter, that should be back. And uh, I think uh, odds are FERC will uh, come out with some type of NOPA in, in response to that. Um, probably sooner rather than later. Again, you know, they're on notice. They're on the clock per your comments, Nick. But um, no, I yeah, appreciate the opportunity to join in the discussion today. Thank you. Yeah, I, I hope they really they are moving forward on that. It's not like the scene from uh, Blazing Saddles where Mel Brooks as the governor says, "We got to do something to protect our phony baloney jobs." Not that the, the commission's <laughs> phony baloney. Just no, 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 no. We're not. I, I've been around DC enough to know there's a lot of action that was it the perception of adding value, perception of, of progress. Yeah, yeah, no. and I, I'm sure that this one's going to go the right way. Ultimately, it's just how quick can we get there? Is it going to be quick enough for? For the public, uh, if, I, I just think if something else happens before there's a new movement, whatever that progress is, that's just going to get spicy. Say that. Yeah, definitely. And and as always, you know, for for those listening or those watching, uh, you know, Archer has quite a bit of expertise in this area. You know, as demonstrated here, uh, you know, Nick leads our, our physical security practice uh, within Archer and and his extensive experience as do several of us uh, staff members and owners and so certainly if there's topics you want to talk more about if there's even specific questions or you want to do the hypothetical hey my uncle works at a utility over there and you know keep it uh, keep it that way we're more than happy to have that conversation uh, just reach out and, and uh, let us know we'd love, love to hear from folks and love to hear your thoughts on on these topics so with that We'll uh, wrap it up. Thanks again for listening to another uh, Direct Connect. Hey, don't forget. We're on. See you again soon. Don't forget, we're on Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon. Yeah, thank Uh, you. 
doing the podcast version now. So yeah. like, follow, podcast subscribe. It's available. Yep. Hit the YouTube oh, channel. Find us everywhere. That's right. Listen <laughs> to us right. on your commute or when you're trying to go to sleep at night. All right. Thanks, everybody. Thanks. Appreciate it. We'll see you soon. Not only is Direct Connect available to listen to, you can also watch each episode on our YouTube channel at youtube.com forward slash Archer News Network. If you're interested in who we are and what we do, head on over to our website at archerint.com. That's archerint.com. You can also follow us on our social media platforms, Archer International on Facebook, Archer Energy Solutions LLC on LinkedIn, at Archer underscore INTL on Twitter. Thanks for listening, and check back every other week for brand new episodes.